if you're wondering what the medical condition is that our piano players have, is they've gone insane because they have to work with Jonathan Dunham. So if you really want to go insane, just go ahead and sign up and work with Johnny all day long if you want to. Hey, I went just about insane a couple weeks ago as I stood in line waiting to return an item back at the store. That's quite a process. And as I waited at the cashier's lane, uh, a lady in front of me was just agitating me because she was on her phone. Her kid was like in the aisle of temptation and grabbing everything that he possibly could from the candy section and bringing it to mom. And she had her phone pressed to her shoulder and she is trying to tell her child, no, 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 no. And then all the while trying to un do the cart and put things on the uh, counter for the cashier. The cashier's asking her some questions and I'm becoming more agitated at the moment. And then it comes my turn. So I'm a little, I'm a little bit rough, ruffled. And so I uh, probably don't say in the most kind words, I just say, I need to return this. This broke on the first use. And uh, that's unacceptable to me. So I, I, I need my money back. Which the cashier looked at me and she said, sir, you do realize that our policy is if it's been used... Uh, we don't return it. I didn't know how to respond to that. I just wanted to go crazy right there in that moment. Um, so I, I kind of like paused and she said, but you know what? Uh, I'm going to let you return it and you can get your money back anyway. I said, whoa, thanks for being so gracious. She said, what do you mean? I said, thanks for being gracious. She said, what's that? I said, I, I guess it's when you go to the store and try to return something that you're not supposed to return and the cashier gives you your money back for it. I'm like, I don't even know what grace is. I didn't know how to define it. And I thought about this as we walked into this, this sermon today. Like, how do you define grace? And the Apostle Paul, he came up with a pretty good description because he says it's not easily defined, but it's, it's, it's easy to detect. And he says that it's... Uh, being defined like this. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. And it was like this exchange that Jesus said, you're going to get something that you don't deserve. Uh, he gave up his royalty so that you could have your riches, and he became poor so that you could become rich. He gave up his perfection to imperfect people, he became full of sin so that you become full of God so that you don't have to remain full of sin anymore. I kind of tried to define grace this week. I defined it like this. Grace is undeserved kindness. I'm not sure if that hits the sweet spot of what it really is, but I look at the, the Bible and I look through the core, the vein of the Bible, and the very thing that keeps, keeps pumping through it is God's grace time and time again. I mean, just think about it. For a moment, God's grace. I mean, he knew what you were going to do in this world long before he created you. He, he knew all the, the things you'd get hung up on and the things that you do get hang, hung up on. He, he understood the addictions you were going to get caught up in. He, he understood all the ways that you were going to make a fool of yourself. He knew of all the things that you were going to do to drop the ball and be entangled by sin and, and not honor him. He knew all of that. God knew all about that. And yet he decided that he was still going to create you. Now, if that's not grace, I don't know what grace is. Where God says, no, I, I, I know they don't deserve this, but I'm going to give them this. And the amazing part about God's grace is he gives us what we need and not what we deserve. You know, Jesus had defined grace. He defined it as something that isn't earned, but something that is offered. 
And he told this story about a farmer who went out and he looked for some hired hands as he opened up his vineyard for the day. And the hired hands, he agreed to pay them at the very beginning $50 for the day. That sounded like a great wage, but as the work became increased and the sun began to shine and get hot, the farmer had to go back out and find some more hired hands. And so he brought them in and he said, you know, will you work for me? Even though it's not a full day, I'll pay you fairly for it. They agreed. And then he had to do that two more times before the day expired. He even hired one group of volunteers or laborers rather, uh, right before the, 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 they had to clock out. And so it came time for the the farmer to pay up the end of the day. And the, volunteer, the, the, the laborers all showed up and the farmer says, you know, you, um, you need to pay them from the people that started last and then work to the ones who came in at the very beginning. And they agreed to do that. $50 was handed out to the ones that came and just worked one hour. And then $50 were given to the ones that worked just from the afternoon to the end and mid-morning to the end. And then the last group came that had worked a full day, and he gave them $50 as well. But they complained about it. They got angry about it. I mean, you would get angry about it. And they ran to the farmer, and they said, that's not right. We had been under the scorching sun, and we've worked our tails off, and we've ruined our backs for you for 50 bucks. And the people that came just one hour and worked one hour got the same wage. And the farmer says, why are you complaining? Isn't that the wage that we agreed upon? Well, that didn't seem to like kind of cover the tracks there. So he said, wait a minute, I get it. You think I'm being unfair, don't you? Then he goes on to say, I can do what I want with my money. Well, that still didn't tide them over. They continued to scream and holler at them. And then Jesus says that the farmer had said, wait, I get it. You're angry because I am gracious with everyone. Those that came at the beginning and those who came at the end. You know what Jesus is teaching us? Grace isn't earned. It's just offered. And we've been looking at these big moments into a guy by the name of David's life. He is king of Israel some thousands of years ago. His biography is found within the Bible. We've touched on the high moments. We've touched on his low moments. We've looked at all sorts of things in his life. But today I want to look at his heart. Because if at the very core of the Bible is grace, you would think that at the very core of an everyday disciple would be grace also. And it is. It's certainly found in David's heart. Grace is. He was a man whose heartbeat beat for God. And if God's heartbeat is grace, well, David's heartbeat should be grace also. Let's look into the story. The story begins in the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel chapter 9. David is king of Israel. He was a tough soldier, but he had a tender heart. Let's start in verse 1. And David asks this question. He says, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul? You remember Saul was the previous king. Is there anyone left in the house of Saul who I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? I assume that David must have thought about the past and some promises that he made to his best friend, Jonathan. That was King Saul's son. And one of the promises they made was on the battlefield. And they made this promise that soldiers often make in times of war. And the, the, the promise was, if I die on this battlefield, will you take care of my descendants? Will you take care of the people that I love? And they both agreed to do that. If one or the other dies, they'll do it. David accepted that promise because he feared King Saul. 
Saul became delusional and he despised David and he desired to kill David at one point. And David said, I'll make this promise because if your dad kills me, I want my, my family taken care of. Now, was, Jonathan was quick to make that promise because there was a custom in those days that the previous dynasty, everyone in the family would be put to death to squash rebellion. And Jonathan, who is son of the king, knows that if David becomes king, which David was anointed and appointed king eventually, that, that Jonathan would be put to death. And Jonathan is saying, wait a minute, David, have some grace towards me and my family that when you take over, you won't follow along with the custom and put my family to death. So Jonathan accepted the promise because he wanted the grace and what we see in the next following verses is really David's heartbeat. It's how he fulfills the promise to Jonathan, even though Jonathan died on the battlefield, and extends that grace to Jonathan's family. So what David does is he calls in a servant that used to work under King Saul's government. Verse 3, David asked him, his name is Ziba, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul who I can show, who I can show God's kindness he doesn't want to just show kindness. He's not like paying it forward here. He's not going to pay for a bunch of drinks at Starbucks of the cars behind him. That's not what he's talking about. Notice what he does. He gets specific and he says, I want to, I want to bless somebody here who comes from the lineage of Jonathan. And he gets specific. And so as we go through this sermon this morning, I'm asking you to pinpoint a person. Someone in your life that doesn't deserve your kindness but this week, you're going to show him some kindness. Someone in your life who doesn't deserve grace, but you're going to show him some grace. I'm not asking you just to pay it forward and, and buy some drinks for the guys behind you in line. I'm asking you to think of a coworker, an ex-spouse, a child, a friend, a boss, someone who you have in name that you can pinpoint, and I'm asking you to show them kindness even though they don't deserve it. Who can you do that for? And what kind of kindness can you show them this week? Look at the second part of verse three. Ziba answered the king, well, there's still a son of Jonathan. Uh, he's lame in both feet. Ziba seems to imply that the disability that, that Jonathan's son has doesn't make him a worthy candidate of, of showing a blessing to it's almost like uh, Ziba is saying, you don't want him. He's, he's half the man. You want to really put your energies into someone who's whole, into someone that is complete. And David's response is found in verse 4. He just says, Ziba, where is he? Now, that's a totally different response than what maybe I would have or what you would have, which is the response of, oh, he has a disability? So if I welcome him into my house, like how much care does he need? And I'd start to weigh it, you know, like, does he need 24-hour care? Really, how much is he going to take away of my energy, my time, my, my finances? But David doesn't ask those questions. He just says, where is he? It's, when you pinpoint that person, that person that comes to mind, who needs your grace and your kindness, even though they don't deserve it, don't weigh out what it's going to cost you to show them that kindness. Friends, grace and love don't look to the merit of the person. Grace and love just look to the opportunity to showcase God's favor and God's grace, even to people that others would say they aren't worthy of it. 
And David asks, where is he? Well, Ziba answers in verse four, he's at the house of Makur, son of Emil, in Lodabar. Now, Lodabar, that region, uh, is not a good place to live. This is like the slums, and it's pushed outside of the city. Actually, the word low in Hebrew means no. Debar means pasture, so it means no pasture. And the place was named because nothing could grow there, and life was unsustainable there. And it wasn't just a description of the... Uh, the soil and the climate. It was really a description of the culture and the souls of those that lived there. Lodabar was no pasture, no survival, no place. It was the area where the Israelites had pushed out those with diseases and disabilities and said, you live here now. And they would scrounge around for food daily. So if you lived in Lodabar, the the routine of your day would be just to find something to survive on, anything to eat, and to wake up to repeat the process. So as you pinpoint a person today, and you start to get specific and say, who can I unleash God's favor on? On someone who doesn't deserve it. Think about their life for a moment. Think about their life. Where are they living? I mean, I'm not talking like literally where are they living, but do they have hope? Do they have the hope that only God can bring them? Do they have meaning and purpose that only God can bring to their life? Do they have those things? Or are they living in a desolate place, desperate for someone, anyone, you, to show them kindness and the favor of God? You see, an everyday disciple looks for those who are in need of grace and disregards the distance it takes to extend it. You know, this past week I came across an article that tried to theorize, figure out how many miles Jesus walked in his four years of ministry. They came up that Jesus walked about 26,000 miles. That's about 18 miles a day from here to Vincennes a day that guy walked. But you know what? In his ministry, if you look at it from Bethlehem where he was born to Jerusalem where he died, which was his purpose in life, he only had to really walk 30 miles. So what that tells me is Jesus went about 26,000 miles out of his way to show kindness to show God's grace. If I look at the stories of Jesus, I can see how he shows the extent of grace every time. If I look at the parables of Jesus, I can see how he talks to us and says, how far are you willing to go? Like the story of the Good Samaritan. We're all familiar with that one. A guy is left for dead on the side of the road after being robbed, and some men have their chance to extend kindness to him, but they just pass by uh, they think it, it, it goes too far for them. But one man, a Samaritan man, takes pity on the guy, bandages the man who has left for dead's wounds, saddles him on his own donkey, takes him to a hotel, tells the hotel owner, you take care of all the expenses, I'll take care of the all expenses, whatever he put, if he wants, he wants to take the towels, he takes the towels, I'll, I'll pay for the towels. If he wants to have movies charged to his room, then I'll pay for the movies charged to his room. It doesn't matter. As long as he's healed, I want the best stuff for him. And Jesus seems to imply within that story this question. To what distance will you go to show someone grace? How far will you take it? Or will you just pass by? And Jesus kind of told that story to define how far we're willing to stretch ourselves to show somebody some kindness, to showcase it. How far will you go? 
to show someone some grace. This person that you're pinpointing right now in your mind that I've asked you to think of, the person that needs grace, needs your kindness, but doesn't deserve it, like how far are you willing to go for them? How great are you willing to show them grace? How far are you willing for your grace to go for them? Does it have limits? Because what we're gonna see in this story David says, my grace, my kindness is not gonna be limited. So he takes, he takes Jonathan's son from a place called No Pasture and he puts him into his palace. He takes him from a place that is nothing but death and puts him into a palace that is thriving with life. And in verse six, here's what it says. When Mephibosheth, and I knew I was gonna mess up that name, that's why I kept his name out of this for such a long time. <laughs> Mephibosheth Son of Jonathan, the son of Saul came to David. He bowed down to pay honor to him. So Jonathan's son gets to the palace. David says, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I'll restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Now, guys, that was an unexpected act of kindness. Mephibosheth didn't, didn't think that's what was going to happen. There's a couple reasons why. Uh, number one, David didn't have a good reputation when it came to those with disabilities. You're saying, what? I thought he was a man that had a heartbeat for God. Oh, he was. But he also had a misrepresentation of who he was because he was a fierce warrior on the battlefield. So one time in the heat of war, the enemy yelled at David and said, you are so weak that even the lime and the, blame, the lame can defeat you. It's kind of an insult. Now with his warrior ethos, he wasn't gonna take that, so he yelled back, I will crush and kill and murder the lame and the blind. They're my enemy. And in the heat of the moment on that battlefield, it had rippled out into off the battlefield, and it, he began to get a reputation, even though it was the wrong reputation, for being a king that didn't like the disabled. And Mephibosheth, I'm sure he heard that rumor. And now he stands in the presence of that king. But not only that, he's a part of the previous dynasty. And what's supposed to happen to someone who was part of the previous dynasty? Well, they're supposed to die and be killed. And if you know the backstory to Mephibosheth, when he was five years old, King Saul, his grandfather, died. David came in as king, and in a rush, the family ran out of that palace trying to escape execution, and Mephibosheth fell down the palace steps and broke his feet and broke his ankles, and as they hid, there was no one there that could correct that and mend his wounds, and so he stayed in a crippled state all of his life, and so he stands before David more than likely thinking he's going to be executed not shown kindness. Mephibosheth was not only shown kindness, he was given a place at the king's table. That was a place of honor. He was given land, the, the land that his grandfather once owned, and he was taken from a place that was desolate, a place where he had to scrounge for food to a place where he had all the food he could possibly imagine. He, he was destitute. He had no money, but now he's given all this property and more money than he knows what to do. He was dejected. He was an outcast of society. Now he's brought into the, the palace and he's treated as a king's son. You know, one of the unexpected acts of kindness, one unexpected act of kindness that you can bring to someone's life has the power to change the outlook and the outcome of someone's life. 
Just one little act of kindness that you can bring to someone who doesn't deserve it, but who needs it. Grace is giving something to someone who doesn't earn it and who can't repay it, but you give it anyway. Now that pinpointed person that you have in mind that needs your grace, who doesn't deserve it, what act of kindness can you bring to them this week that will change their outcome or their outlook on life? What is that act of kindness? Some of you are thinking gigantic kind of stuff, but I'm asking you, don't go big. Because it's probably the small things that make the biggest difference to somebody. Like just a word of encouragement, an honest, genuine word of encouragement could change someone's outlook for the entire day or maybe even their life. Some of you may remember the name Bob Carey. He was a senator of Nebraska. He also became the governor of Nebraska at one time when he was... uh, Younger, he was a Navy SEAL and a part of a SEAL team in the Vietnam War, and it was discovered in 2001 with the release of some war documents that he and his team did a raid on a Vietnamese village and um, committed an act of atrocity where 20-plus innocent women and children were, were killed in that raid. Now, they all admit that after the fog of war had cleared and the bullets stopped and the fighting had ended, did they realize what they had done? It was unintentional. He said he lives with that nightmare every single day. But when a reporter grabbed hold of that story, 32 years later after the incident, it made national news. And some of you may be able to recall that like 17 years ago when the nation was calling for Bob Carey to step down and resign and when someone were saying he, he needs to be tried as a war criminal and all of his friends left his side and there was a, a few people totally unexpected in his life that stayed around and they would just whisper and write to him and, and call him with words of encouragement. And so out of that he had said, unexpected kindness is the most powerful, least costly, and most underrated agent of human change. Just unexpected kindness. Mark Twain had quipped, kindness is a language which the deaf can hear and the blind can see. And if you're looking to change someone's life, it's probably not in the monumental kind of thing. It's probably in the minuscule stuff, often overlooked, like a word of encouragement that's genuine from you. Who is it that you've pinpointed? Who is that person that doesn't deserve it but needs your grace? See, your unexpected kindness may be understood, though, by that person. In a world where we've been conditioned to believe that uh, most people only give to get, whoever you show kindness to that doesn't think they deserve it might... uh, might think you want something out of them. Look at verse 8. David showed compassion to Mephibosheth, and he didn't know what to make of it. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? A dead dog. Which was kind of like a, a slam on himself. He was saying, I'm not worthy of being shown grace here. I'm nothing. He kind of self-loathed that he was the scum of the earth. And uh, he wasn't, but he felt that way. He just didn't think he deserved grace. He didn't think he deserved someone to do something kind for him. As you think and pinpoint that person, it's it's quite possible that that person's close to you. But that person has kind of this feeling 
even though it's not true, they're not, that, that they're, not, they're not worthy of being shown kindness, that they're not worthy of being shown grace. You might even have people come to you and say, you know what, don't, don't even waste your time with her. We, we tried, and the last time we tried to be kind, we, we were taken advantage of. And what they're advising you to do is to limit your grace. That's what they're advising you to do. And so I think inevitably the question has to be, when do I limit my grace? Is, is grace even limited? When you think about a waterfall, waterfall has to have a source. And if that source dries up, well, then the falls dry up. And if you think about the grace that we show to others, that comes from a source. The source is God. Does God's grace ever dry up? Is God's kindness limited? So if God is our source of grace, then shouldn't our grace keep falling out of us for others in abundance? See, I know, I, I know as I say that, you're thinking of someone that will take advantage of you. Because they don't deserve your grace, but they need it. And you're thinking they're going to take advantage of me, though, if I don't, if I, I, I got to put a cap on this. And I don't know where that cap is. I know you're going to have to pray for God's wisdom because I do know that there is a line between helping somebody and enabling somebody. And you're going to have to find out whatever that fine line is. But I do know this about our God. Grace has no limit to him. Look at the scriptures found in Romans chapter 5. It says, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Like you just have more sin, that's fine. Great. God has more grace. You say, yeah, but I got greater sin. God says, I've got greater grace. And David, he just goes overboard, overboard with this grace stuff. Like in verse 9, he says, not only am I going to give you your granddaddy's inheritance that you were supposed to get that was taken from you, not only am I going to let you live in the palace and you can have the, the full realm of the place, I'm going to give you some servants to take care of that property because you're disabled and you won't be able to take care of it. You won't be able to farm it. So I'm going to give you a total of 36 servants to take care of that and to take care of you. Now, that's, that's total unexpected kindness from David. That's a great story, right? David helped someone that didn't deserve it, but he showed him kindness anyway. But that's not the end of the story. Because in 2 Samuel 19, the story gets messy. You want to know why the story gets messy? Because grace gets messy. So what happens is, in 2 Samuel 19, is that civil war has broken out. The rebellion between David and his, his son Absalom that we heard about last week, the rebellious son. And as David has gone out to war to fight, as Absalom's gone out to war to fight, back in the palace is Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth stays back, but what he does is he makes a play for control of the kingdom. And Ziba, that servant, comes to David after the war has ended. He says, uh, I'm, I'm here to tattle on Jonathan's kid. Uh, David, while you were away, he tried to take control over the kingdom. He tried to make a play for the palace now, if I were David, I'd said, you know what? I should have killed the kid when he, was, when he was five. I knew this would come to nothing. I knew he'd take advantage of me. I knew, and David was genuinely hurt. I mean, he felt like the knife had been put in his back. He had genuinely tried to show compassion to this kid, and now this guy has driven the knife right in his back. The grace says he had shown now had an ungrateful outlook to it. So how does David respond? How do you respond to someone that you've shown grace and they take advantage of it? 
Well, David brings a level of punishment. He says to Mephibosheth, I'm going to take your land from you. I'm going to give it to Ziba. And, but you can still stay as a, as a kid to me in this palace, and I'll still take care of you for the rest of your life. So there was a punishment there. You've done wrong. A correction. But grace didn't stop, even though David was angered. Hey, this hit home for me last week. I had been working with this this young man in our community for a couple of years. And he gave me a phone call like Tuesday. And he asked me if I could help him out. And usually I'm like real quick to help him out. But this time I had to say, you know, I've got meetings all morning. And can I help you out later on in the afternoon? It won't be till like 3.30 or 4 o'clock. And for whatever reason, I just hit him wrong. Uh, Even though I said it right, it hit him wrong. And he started to scold me on the phone and get angry on me. And you never help. You're always this way. You know, he went with those crazy words, right? Never, always. All, you know, he just blew me up on the phone. And I thought, you know what? I'm done with this guy. I am done. This is getting messy. And so he hung up on me as he's shouting me out. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to call him back. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to give it right back. And so I call him up, and he sends me to voicemail, and I'm ready just to lay it out on voicemail. And then something comes over me, I just hang up. And then I thought about it, this story that I was studying. And I said, wow, David was super graceful with a guy that stabbed him in the back. And I haven't been stabbed in the back quite like that. Matt, don't you think you should show a little grace here? And so God just, you know overwhelmed me, and I'm going, why are you doing this, God? I had the right words to say to him at the first phone call. Now I have to rethink my words and calm down a little bit, and I give him a call back. He sends me to voicemail again, and my verbiage was, I know you're angry with me. I'm not going to be angry with you. It's going to take a lot more than that to push my help away. I thought that was pretty gracious. I don't know. And some of you are thinking, you know, why is this all important, this pinpointing somebody, this grace talk, being kind to somebody? Why, why, why should I stretch myself and go the distance for someone who doesn't deserve it? Why should you go the distance for someone who doesn't deserve it? Why should you walk the extra mile? Why should you turn the other cheek? Why you, should you give to them what they need and even more? Oh, you want to hear the simple answer? Because that's what God has done for you. That's the simple answer. And if you look at the story of David, David wasn't doing that for Jonathan's sake. Or for, for uh, Mephibosheth's sake. He was doing it for his, his dad's sake. He didn't take pity that he was crippled. That's not what he did. Don't miss the spiritual implications of this story here. I can't even say his name. Mr. M was disabled physically, uh, but we're paralyzed in sin spiritually. And just as David had to go and find him, God has had to go to our place of destitution and find us. And friends, he knocks, God knocks on the door of your heart. You know what he does? He welcomes us to his palace, to his kingdom. And he says, it's there that you can find rest in his salvation. You can be comforted by that. 
Like you don't have to worry about these sin things anymore. And it's there as Jesus knocks on the door of your heart that he welcomes you to just be in his protection. And he gives you a place at the seat of his table. And he calls you his daughter. And he says, you're my son. You know, grace isn't reserved for good people. (laughs) No, grace is extended by a good God for bad people so that we can experience his deep love. So here's the level. With the grace that you've been shown by God, leave this place today and showcase it to that person you've pinpointed. Let's pray together. Father, with this challenge, may we leave here today filled with an understanding of what to do, consumed by your kindness to us, and may we release that and unleash it on others. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I'm asking you to stand, and as we sing this song of commitment, that you use this moment to pray and thank God for his grace, and maybe today you haven't found that grace in Jesus. I wanna talk to you more about what it means to, to be a believer who's saved by Christ. Maybe Jesus today is knocking at the door of your heart. Would you come and meet with me and talk to me more about that? I'll be standing right here by this baptistry, and there'll be other ministers here to talk to you and pray with you as well.